Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am Dr. Melek Ferat Altai, a musician and a neuroscientist by training. I will be your host today. We will be talking to Dr. James Charney about his new book, Madness at the Movies, Understanding Mental Illness Through Film, a unique exploration of how mental disorders are portrayed in classic and contemporary films. Hello, uh, James. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast today. And how are you? I'm fine. I'm delighted to be here. Excellent. So uh, before we start discussing your book, uh, Madness at the Movies, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, um, your academic training? Yes, I am a a retired child and adolescent and family psychiatrist. Um, I teach at uh, the Yale University Medical School. Um, And I've had a private practice for about 35 years, but I retired a few years ago. Um, I still teach when I am in New Haven, but um, my wife and I uh, spend half of the year um, uh, out of the country. We we have a place in Italy. And um, when we are in New Haven, which is where Yale is, uh, I, I teach at the medical school. I teach diagnosis and interviewing skills. Uh, and uh, I went to college in the New York area. Um, I went to Columbia University for my undergraduate work. And then the medical school I went to, um, uh, to become a psychiatrist, you have to go to medical school first. I went to Duke University Medical School in North Carolina. And then I did my psychiatric training at the University of Washington in the state of, uh, uh, in, in Seattle, Washington, in the state of Washington. And I have been uh, teaching at Yale and having a private practice in New Haven for almost 35 years, maybe more. Wow, that's very impressive. And um, clearly, um, you have a strong interest in the movies. Uh, could you tell us about uh, this this um, uh, interest? How did you become uh, interest getting interested in movies um and how did this influence your professional life i've always loved movies i loved them as a kid uh i i used to have a habit of going to the movies about once a week in our neighborhood theater to give you a measure of how old i am and back then it cost about 25 cents um to see a movie and it was often a double feature uh but i was my passion for movies really was in, increased and and I think ignited when I was an undergraduate at Columbia and I was able to attend the very first course that talked about the history of movies, the history of film, and talked a little bit about the craft of film, how they work. Uh, this was this was uh, years before there was any such thing as film studies in in universities, but it was a single course offered by a professor there. They showed films, and then we had um, an opportunity to hear the professor lecture about them. And at the same time, because I was at Columbia, which is in New York City, Uh, I was able to go to one of the several repertory theaters that they had in New York at the time, repertory movie theaters, where they would show classic films, older films, sometimes newer films, but often with a theme, uh, often a double feature. You'd see two films for the price of one, and you'd see two films that were somewhat related to each other in their stories or maybe had the same star or the same director. And so I was able to have to supplement the formal uh, course I had in the history of film and film appreciation. Um, with uh, many, many other movies that were I was able to have access to during that time. Um, and I 
I kept doing that when I was in medical school because I I had been an English major in college. And back then you could be an English major and also do pre-med. It's almost impossible to, nowadays because the demands for, for the pre-med um, coursework uh, for an undergraduate who is planning to go to medical school, those demands have increased. But back in the day, I was able to be an English major as well. So I took some very exciting courses on English literature and uh, uh, it, it inspired me to uh, enjoy writing and discover that I enjoyed writing so that when I was in medical school, even though that was extremely, extremely demanding of time, when I had some time off, I would go to the movies and I, I even spent um, uh, the better part of a year or two writing movie reviews for the local newspaper. Uh, again, putting together my interest in in writing as well as my interest in film. And, and also it was an opportunity to stay current about film. So film has always been part of my life. It's a, it's basically a hobby initially, but a hobby I took seriously. So I, I studied, I read, um, and I tried to learn as much as I could about how films work, as well as simply enjoying them by going to the movies with my wife and, and my friends. Right. And um Madness at the Movies. Um, how did you come to write this book now? Why uh, is there a particular reason why you decided to to put this book together? And if you were to uh, summarize the book in one sentence, what would be that sentence? I think the one. The, I think the one sentence may be a little bit hard, but I could probably do it in two or three. Um, let me tell you about the book, and then I'll tell you why I'm, I wrote it now. Um, I think of Madness at the Movies as it's a series of informal essays. It's written for any reader who's interested in exploring the experience of mental illness as portrayed in classic films and also contemporary films. I, you could think of it as kind of Madness 101 with movies. You don't need any background knowledge in psychology or film studies. Um, it's a chance to look at madness in films that you may not have seen, and so to introduce you to films you haven't seen, but also to give you new insights into a film you may have seen that has madness in it. And, and giving you different ways to think about it or understand what you're seeing. I think the chapters are fun to read, at least I wrote them to be fun to read, um, because the other thing that I do throughout the book is discuss how the films work. What, what's the film craft? What are the techniques that the film uses to help pull you into the mind of the person who's experiencing the madness? So that's my slightly long elevator pitch um, to, to, <laughs> to, uh, to, to describe the book. Uh, why now? Um, COVID is why now. Uh, the uh, I taught the course for uh, close to 15 years at Yale. And after I retired and spent some time in Italy, I taught it uh, a version of the course at a couple of universities in, um, in Italy, including the American University in Rome uh, and Arcadia University also in Rome. And also I taught it um, as a workshop in Slovenia, which is where my son and his family live. Uh, so I've always kept my hand in about this course, and I've always found it an interesting um, course to supplement, to think about. I would always be looking for new movies that might be useful uh, to teach in the course. But over the many years that I taught it, I found that certain films, particularly certain classic films, were just extremely well suited to explain and, and explore the experience of madness. So there were some core films that I used year after year, but almost every year I would teach the course, I would also introduce um, newer films or, or different ones. Uh, so I stopped teaching that course uh, formally 20 years ago. And, and then I, when I taught it in Italy, I was teaching it as up to 
maybe four or five years ago. And frankly, I missed teaching it. And throughout this time that I was teaching it, um, and during the time since my, I had stopped teaching it at Yale when I when I retired from New Haven and we weren't there as much, um, uh, traveling back and forth to Europe, uh, I always had in the back of my mind, I think there's a book here. I would love to share the experience I had teaching th these films, the experience I had with the students who engaged with me and raised really interesting questions, sometimes questions that hadn't occurred to me. Uh, I'd like to be able to see, is there a way can, I can put this into a book that somebody could enjoy and learn from? But I had a hard time figuring out how to do that because the structure of the courses has always been that I would uh, insist that the students see the films together in a theater-like setting, which I would set up for them, basically a classroom. Uh, when it was at Yale, it would be a classroom at Yale, but that had a very sophisticated projection system. So uh, you would be able to watch the film on a screen in a darkened room with a group of people, which is the way you should be watching movies. And hopefully in a big enough screen and uh, so that you could really have the, have the film Take, overwhelm your senses, uh, which can happen in the best movie theaters where you have uh, unusually good sound systems as well as a very large screen. Uh, so uh, with the students having seen the film together, as so it becomes a communal experience, the very next day we would always have the class where we would discuss it and we would talk about the madnesses that were portrayed in the movie. The film would be fresh in their minds um, and they would have all experienced it together. So how do I do that and put it in a book where there's no way I can expect or ask the person reading the book to... Um, to organize a personal film festival. Uh, though uh, the truth is a few friends of mine have actually done that since the book has come out, which I've been very pleased to hear. But uh, how do I do that without that having to be a requirement? And so it took me a while to figure out how to do it. And also it took me some time to find the time to sit still and actually do it. And what made that possible was COVID and the lockdowns that happened. So all of a sudden I had was stuck in my house and something that had been brewing for fully a decade and that my son had been encouraging me. My son is a, is a widely published uh, writer on the subject of art history. He's working on, I think, his 20th book by now. Um, and he really understood that I wanted to write this book and he offered to try to help guide me to find a publisher and to write a proposal. And finally, I took him up on it and I did that. And once uh, I found a publisher that accepted the book, I, I had the, the very lovely privilege of during the time we couldn't pretty much go anywhere, I had a project and the project was writing this book. And it was fulfilling. It filled my time. It was exciting. It allowed me to 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 relive the experiences um, I had had when I taught the course. And I think I actually came up with a way of of constructing the book that someone doesn't need to have taken the course to really be able to appreciate it and enjoy it. Um, so the now is hallelujah for COVID. <laughs> That's the only good thing I can say about COVID. But um, but to me, it, it, it proved a blessing because it, it made it impossible almost not to do something useful. Well, I'm glad that uh, you took the time to write it because I uh, thoroughly enjoyed reading it. And uh, something that by, I By find... the way, that, that makes me feel good that you say that. Thank you. <laughs> um, so 
the title of the book, Madness at the Movies, it's almost uh, provocative and it certainly um, it draws the attention of the reader. Could you tell us how you chose this title and the course that you gave um, at Yale? Um, was it of the same title as, yes. uh, as yes. the book title? You, you you nailed it exactly um for it uh, for that it's it, it was provocative and catchy uh, and that's why I have the title um uh madness is is in no way a um an insult uh it's a descriptive word it's it's a word with a very very long history uh and it basically means exactly mental illness um but it doesn't Im imply as mental illness does um that we have a profound medical understanding of 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 what what makes it happen and how to fix it. So I liked avoiding that implication, and I liked the fact that it was uh, a little bit uh, provocative. And I particularly liked the fact that Madness at the Movies is alliterative, which which uh, spoke to my English major um, uh, part of me, uh, and also that any time I mentioned that title. So maybe I tell somebody I was teaching such a course, or that I, or or that I was thinking about um, uh, about particular film that I might want to use in the course. Immediately, people would understand what it was about, and immediately start asking me what films were in the course and suggesting to me films that they thought I should consider. So it was clearly a title that said exactly what I wanted it to say, which is what it's about, but it also suggested that it would be approachable. It suggested that it wouldn't be something filled with jargon or very technical. In fact, it's 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 uh, clinically quite rigorous. Um, I think I think what I say there is something uh, about all these uh, forms of madness are things that any psychiatrist would agree with, or if they disagreed, they would be respectful of, of my opinion. Um, but I try to tell the story um, and explain things in a way that someone would understand without any background and would actually find sometimes amusing. I tell jokes in the book. I tell anecdotes. I digress. I try to make it um, uh, engaging. And I was hoping that Madness at the Movie conveyed that. I did have a problem, as, you're, uh, as you are um, uh, pointing to, at Yale, which is that the course was called Madness at the Movie for about the first five or six years I was teaching it. And then, um, then uh, I'll, I'll, I'll ruin the story by cutting it short. But the bottom line is that uh, first the Department of Psychology that was uh, co-sponsoring the course, and then the Department of Film Studies, which was the other co-sponsor. They there was a recognition at the university that this is was a course that had its feet in two different disciplines: psychology, abnormal psychology, and film studies. And in fact. Um, when the co the co-sponsoring departments uh, agreed for me to do the course, uh, the psychology department wanted one third of my students to be psychology majors. The film studies department wanted one third of the course to be film study majors, and the the third third I was allowed to choose uh, students from any other discipline, which I, which I did um, because it would have been. Um, uh, a desperately uh, boring collection if it was all psychology majors and film studies majors throwing their jargon at each other. So having people from di different disciplines kind of leveled the playing field. I had people from English and 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 art people and physicists and computer folks and economics folks um, and historians um, and um, and many of them came with a, a love and knowledge of movies, and many of them knew nothing about it, but were just curious. And to me, that was a wonderful mix. And I was, I'm was i hoping, frankly, that's that will be the audience for this book. Uh, 
But anyway, so first the psychology department says, you know what, we don't have any trouble with your using the word film, but we don't use the word madness in our department. And we want you to change that word to psychopathology. And within a few weeks, the film studies person, the, the dean called me in and said, we love the course. We're really delighted with it. Um, but we don't use the word movies in our department. We use film studies or film. So what we want you to do is you can call it madness in in film, but you can't call it madness in movies. And the psychology people are saying you have to call it psychopathology. It could be psychopathology in movies or at the movies, but you can't use the word madness. So the Blue Book, which is the catalog of courses at Yale, after about the fifth or sixth year I taught it, they changed the title to psychopathology in film, which to me is is uh, takes the breath out of, takes the air out of the title and makes it sound much less fun. And I wanted it to be fun. So um, so I played a little trick on them, which was the, um, uh, but by that time, the course was well known. Every year I would have something in the ballpark of 150 students applying for the 25 seats in the class. It was a seminar uh, uh, where the students would sit around a table with me and it would uh, I would encourage discussion and questions. Uh, so uh, it, the course was well known and people uh, were interested enough in it that they would sometimes, if they were um, not able to take it one year, they would come back and say, well, can I take it next year? And, and so there was an eagerness about it. So I knew that people knew it as madness at the movies. So in the catalog, it was called Psychopathology and Film, and directly underneath it, where I was allowed to write a one-paragraph description of the course, I wrote, Madness that the Movies is a course about, <laughs> and and, um, and um, nobody seemed to object to that, So uh, and and we always called it Madness at the Movies. So um, I, I ran into a similar problem briefly with my publisher, but from day one, I had made it clear to them that the title was was not to be changed, and they accepted that. Also, I discovered that, in fact, a lot of academic books, books written for, for scholars, use the word madness in the title of their book. In fact, the irony was, at a time that my press, Hopkins Press, um, was starting to raise questions about the title, very near where basically where everything else was done. And all of a sudden they say, well, we're not so happy with this title. At which point I said, well, let me remind you, that's the title. Um, I said, and oh, by the way, you're publishing a book with madness in the title in two months. <laughs> so I happen to see that in their catalog. So so um, they backed down and I frankly, I'm very happy with the title. I also, I'm very happy with the cover of the book. It really pops. And I've noticed that... Um, that the book kind of stands out among other books when it's sitting on a book table. So um, in many ways, the publisher has done very well by me, but we did have an issue about the title. I can get I can get stubborn. <laughs> so if you don't mind, I will use the term madness from now on. As Please you do. do. Yes. Okay, excellent. So um, another question that I have in mind is um, within the scope of the book, how did you select the type of types of madnesses to cover? Uh, did you first select the movies that you wanted to cover in the book um, or the types of madnesses? And then you looked for classical movies or masterpieces. How, how did it how did you form the chapters of the book? In other, in other words, that, 
That's a very good question, Pranat. Um, uh, let me think about that. Uh, let me just mention that um, a particular film is the one that actually gave the germ of the idea for the course, um, and that was the film Ordinary People, which is a marvelous film that was directed by Robert Redford and won uh, the best movie uh, Oscar in 1980. Uh, and it's a portrait of a family in crisis because one uh, the, the oldest older son of the family dies in a boating accident. And the younger son becomes profoundly depressed, but the whole family is grieving. And the, they're each grieving in a different way. And as a result, they're not really able to help each other. And and the, it was this was based on a novel that I found very touching. And when I saw the movie, I thought it was every bit as good as the novel or maybe even better. It's an extraordinary film and I, I recommend it to you. And it's a film which, though I've seen it, because I've, I've taught it over the years, I probably have seen it 40 or 50 times. Every single time it brings tears to my eyes in a, in a good way, because this is a family that um, is in pain, but they're seeing a way out. And, that, and that, that's very special. Uh, anyway, having seen that film, I kind of came out of uh, watching it. I guess it was the second time I'd seen it uh, um, saying, you know, this would be so great if I could teach, use this film to teach something about depression, about grieving, and about suicide. There's a suicide attempt in, in the film. Uh, and um, I, I found myself thinking about it along those lines, that it would be a wonderful film to teach. And then I started thinking, are there other films portraying other forms of madness that uh, would be equally useful to teach? And so I started looking for films first, and I would say diagnoses second. But I had certain major uh, forms of mental illness, major forms of madness that I really would want to touch on. Um, and particularly uh, the psychotic illnesses, uh, schizophrenia and and uh, the more extreme versions of bipolar illness uh, with, with mania. Um, definitely depression was one that was addressed by ordinary people, but there were other films as well that could, that could um, uh, broaden the discussion. Uh, I wanted to also look at um, issues of uh, delusional thinking, uh, and um, that requ uh, that was something that I chose as a diagnostic uh, subject and then wound up looking for films that would fit it. On the other hand, a film like um, Peeping Tom, which is a, a fascinating film about a serial killer who is also a voyeur and um, has uh, compulsions and obsessions that I thought would be really interesting to discuss. Uh, I found also that so many films are written about psychopaths, uh, which is a, a, a personality disorder. We could talk about it a little bit later if you want. But um, there, you know, the best villains, the best films often have wonderful villains, especially if they're melodramas, if they're action, if they're thrillers. Uh, uh, the villain is often the most interesting character. The hero can come across as is quite charismatic, but maybe not not as complicated a character as the villain. And very often the villain is, is someone who one could indeed call the psychopath. So I looked for several films like that. The, one of the ones that leaped out at me initially was um, A Strangers on a Train by Alfred Hitchcock. Um, and that turned out to be very good uh, for, for being able to discuss that. And then I found several other films as well. Uh, Night of the Hunter is a film that a lot of people are not aware of, but it is it is one of the great films ever made. It's the only film that was directed by the the uh, English actor Charles Lawton. He's not in the film; he just directed it. But but it's 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 an extraordinarily uh, masterful job, and it stars Robert Mitchum as one of the scariest psychopaths you can imagine. Famously, he has 
tattooed on the uh, knuckles of his hand, the word love on one hand and the word hate, H-A-T-E, on the other. And he uses that pretending to be a preacher to mesmerize the townspeople and get them to uh, to, to see him as 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 uh, as a leader, as a benign person um, who can uh, show them the light through religion. But all the time, he's somebody who kills uh, widows and, and steals their money. Uh, the story, that particular movie, Night of the Hunter, is, is fascinating because it's actually told as though it's a child's very scary fairy tale. The Brothers Grimm times 10, uh, with the big bad wolf being the psychopath, um, Harry Powell, who's, who is the, uh, the, the con man preacher uh, played by Robert Mitchum. Uh, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating film. Um, it is, it's a film that will disturb your dreams. Trust me. They're, they're all of the, because, of, because of this film is from the 1950s, all of the violence happens off screen or just outside of the, the frame of the screen. So it's not a, a movie where you're staring at violence in the face the way you can be with some more contemporary films. But it is a movie that is spooky and scary and um, not a film I would take any child to, but it, it has the shape and form of a fairy tale. It uh, is anyway, on my movie list. Definitely. Okay, um, I, I, will, I would love to hear from you what you think. Um, uh, don't plan to sleep well that night. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, anyway, it's a great film and, and it's a film that really holds up well. Um, and But sadly, which happened so much, it happened with this film, it also happened with Peeping Tom. Uh, it did very, very poorly at the box office when it came out. The studio didn't know what to do with it because it was so strange. I mean, imagine a fairy tale about a serial killer. You just, you know, that's that doesn't seem to make sense to most people until you experience the film. Um, so it it went nowhere. It made no money, and he was never allowed to make another film, which I think is 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 one of the many the many personal tragedies that happen in Hollywood, where somebody is so much ahead of their time and they don't get the support they need. The problem with movie making is it's expensive and it's a business. And sometimes the people in charge of the business don't see the art um, or they don't care that it's art. They just want it to make money. And um, and of course, the best circumstances, you have a film that's brilliant and happens to be very successful. And there are a lot of films like that, too. But um, a perfect example of that is Psycho. Psycho is a, is a brilliant film and very unusual. Uh, it was totally unusual for Alfred Hitchcock's uh, um, uh, catalog of films because he was famous for doing uh thrillers, uh, doing films uh, with a lot of suspense. But the last thing that anyone imagined he would ever do is a horror film. And that's what Psycho is. Uh, also, that he would do a black and white film in a time when every other film was in technicolor because they were trying to distinguish movie going from watching television. And back then, television was still black and white. Um, so he makes a black and white horror film. And rather than destroy it, his career, it was so successful, it it, it, it put him up on a pedestal even higher than he'd been before. And it made him a ton of money because, because the studios wouldn't pay for it. So he paid for it himself and he really got his money back. So um, sometimes it's a good thing and sometimes it could ruin a career. Um, I like telling those stories in the book too. But, um, but uh, Psycho, we look at um, and raising questions about whether it's a portrait of um, multiple personality disorder or um, uh, what, what we, what we call um 
uh, dissociative identity disorder these days, DID. It's the same thing as multiple personality. And of course, there have been a lot of movies about multiple personality. And, and one of the things I do in the book, which I always did in class, is though we would have a featured film, we would also look at film clips, uh, excerpts from a handful of other films that dealt with the same uh, madness, but showed it in different ways. Because many, many a classic uh, mental illness can present in different ways and also can be um, explored and looked at and 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 um, and conveyed in different ways too and so it's good to see it as all in as many different forms as possible and, we, and I I do that in the chapters in sections I call other visions in each chapter um, but I also did it in the class where I would actually project film clips from from these other films so with psycho we look at um, a handful of films um, uh, uh, that show show multiple personality disorder, but also show what I think is the diagnosis in Psycho, which is basically he is um, having a psychotic experience. I wouldn't label it as schizophrenia. I'm not sure um, uh, exactly what the category of his psychosis would be, but his psychosis is that he he that his mother is still alive and that he can he can um, can uh, he can engage with her by becoming her. Um, so uh, we kind of skipped ahead to there. But anyway, so the, the, this is a very long answer to your very good short question, which is um, sometimes the movies would define the illness and sometimes the illness would define the movie um, that I would uh, that I would wind up showing. I would like to mention that the, the order of the films in the book um, are paralleling how psychiatrists are taught uh, to understand and, and get comfortable dealing with people who are having a certain kind of madness. Um, psychiatrists are first exposed to the most um, the most extreme forms of, of mental illness, the, the psychotic illnesses like schizophrenia, where somebody right. is where somebody is seeing something or hearing something that isn't there, that they're out of touch with reality. Uh, because that is so different from your own experience, you are able to see it as happening to the other. And it, it gives you a certain objectivity when you're brand new at this and a little scared of what you're doing and a little uncertain that you know what you're doing. Um, it, it allows you to have some distance uh, and, and not get not over identify with the with the patient, but at the same time, identify enough that you're sympathetic and want to be as helpful as you can be. So to see um, to start with a, an extreme version of the illnesses and then work your way gradually to the mood disorders and then finally to the anxieties, which most of us could identify with by being, being honest enough to say we probably experience it. We don't experience a, um, a disorder version of the illness, meaning that um, uh, that it's it's so problematic that it so controls our life that we could call it an illness. But most of us have the experience of anxiety. We get nervous when something happens, if we're going to take a test, if we're going to meet somebody, if we're going to do a podcast with Farat, we can get nervous. Um, and um, <laughs> she's, by the way, she, you have made me feel very comfortable, so I'm not feeling nervous. <laughs> but, but but thinking about it in advance, having not done this too many times, um, uh, you get nervous and you wonder how it's going to be. Partly, by by definition, anxiety is 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 an apprehension that is an anticipation of something happening, which is different from being scared of something that's in front of you. So, you know, if there's a wild animal or some deadly person is about to attack you, 
you're not feeling anxiety, you're feeling fear. And that's, and that's a very different um, uh, sensation, but it's also has a different significance. Uh, the problem with anxiety is it's often anticipation of something um, that um, isn't necessarily something that's going to wind up being bad, but you're, you, you allow your imagination to get away with you. Um, with somebody who doesn't have a chronic problem with anxiety, as soon as you start doing the thing or you, or, or you see what it's going to look like, your anxiety eases and you're and you're okay and you can function well um if you get anxious before a test um if anxiety is not really a problem once you sit down and you've opened the test booklet and you start doing the questions then you're paying attention to the task at hand and the anxiety may help you focus a little bit because it keeps you on uh it it it, it keeps you on edge in a useful way but it's not going to interfere with your being able to think clearly but if you have a, the kind of anxiety that can become a disorder it stops you from thinking well because the anxiety overwhelms you and even with the test in front of you you can't it doesn't go away so that becomes a, a version a version of a madness when it's an when it's an extreme and some very eccentric and specific versions of anxiety are the phobias um and i would bet almost everybody listening to this is has some kind of level of a phobia of something. In the book, uh, I admit to having a, a phobia of heights, and it, it's it's been lifelong. It's much much better now. Um, I, um, but uh, to put me in a very high place at the edge of a cliff, I'm not so comfortable. I will back away from that cliff, and I might say, "No, thank you. I'm not going there." Uh, uh, so a, a phobia is something that you will avoid to avoid the feeling anxiety that it produces. Um, obsessive compulsive disorders are basically um, compulsive behaviors to avoid the anxiety of something catastrophic happening. And the compulsive behaviors can be very odd and eccentric. And what di differentiates them uh, from someone who's outright psychotic is the person who's doing something strange. Like he is, he can, when he goes into a room, you can see this in the movie, um, uh, as good as it gets with Jack Nicholson, uh, who has OCD, um, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. When he goes into a room, he has to flick the light switch five times and he counts. And when he, um, uh, when he, uh, opens the door. He has to turn the lock five times before he can go in the room. <clears throat> and then we see that he obsessively washes his hands because he has a problem with germs. Um, so when someone is doing these eccentric behaviors, what differentiates them from being psychotic is that they know that these are silly. They know that they that there's no real reason for them to do something like flicking a light switch five times before they can stop and move on, um, but they can't not do it. And that's the definition of a compulsion. And if they have these kinds of compulsions then they're dealing with an anxiety disorder um, that we call obsessive compulsive because it has certain qualities to it, which we could talk about in, uh, a little bit later if you'd like. Um, so there are wonderful films that portray that. There are wonderful films that portray um, uh, bipolar illness, which is something that we talk about. Um, and um, and the structure of the of the uh, the book is to start with the most severe and to come uh, to end up with what I call garden variety madnesses, things that most of us have experienced with, most of us can identify with. And by the way, that's the reason uh, the movies. Uh, that show them are more often comedies rather than the dramas or the thrillers that you will see with somebody who is psychotic. With the psychotic illnesses, we start out with Through a Glass Darkly, which is a portrait of a woman with schizophrenia. She's been sent home from the hospital. Um, 
supposedly doing well, but with the possibility of having a relapse. And we see how it affects her family. It's basically a, a movie with only four people, all members of the family, um, all responding to trying to be helpful, this woman, with this woman who is beginning to once again um, have both delusions and hear and see things that are not there. And then the film that, to me, hits um, this particular diagnosis most powerfully um, is a movie called Repulsion, directed by Roman Polanski, and is a portrait of this woman, Carol, in London in the 1960s, who, after she is left alone in the apartment um, by her sister, um, begins to deteriorate and become increasingly delusional, uh, hallucinating um, the, the, the apartment takes on a life of its own. Uh, the walls melt, the, 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 the ceilings crack. They don't really, that's what she's seeing. If we were there watching her, we wouldn't see any of this, but this is what her experience is and the film conveys it powerfully. And then it becomes a bit of a thriller because, um, because of her delusions, she winds up um, uh, killing one young man who um, is trying to help her and she miss misreads his um, his actions and killing another one who is not trying to help her, but is trying to uh, to hit on her. Um, and she doesn't misread that, but her reaction is rather extreme and she winds up killing him too. Um, so uh, what one of the things that I actually talk about both in, in the class and in the book several times um, is that um, the violence that is shown in these thrillers is is not typical. It's not normal even for people who have a psychotic illness if there is some violence it is more likely that they will do violence to themselves that the voice in their head will tell them to do something to hurt themselves rather than to hurt somebody else violence is possible but it's very uncommon but in the movies violence sells and so they will often distort um the nature of the illness at that point uh, by the way in in madness of the movies uh i as, as often as possible, will point out mistakes that the films make, things that, that they do that maybe make the story better, but aren't real and, um, and, or distort your understanding of the, of the madness. So um, even the best movies will have some of these errors. Um, but even if, if that's the case, the error itself can give you something to talk about so you can understand um, the fact that it's a mistake and the fact that it's an exaggeration, uh, the fact that it's very rare, um, that, that helps you learn a little bit more about uh, about the particular madness of, of each chapter. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I ran on. My my apologies. No, 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 no. no that was great. That was a great uh, overview of, of the different types of madnesses that you discuss in the book. Um, actually, I would like to go back to the very beginning of, of, of the book, and you discuss uh, a great movie there, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. So could you tell us why you start your book with this uh, movie? It's a very good question. Um, I would say... Nine times out of 10, when in casual conversation, I would mention that I was writing a book called Madness of the Movie, someone would say, oh, is One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest in there? Uh, so it, right. it's a very, yes. it's a very, very, it's a very well-known movie. Uh, it is a movie um, that displays a lot of different madnesses, uh, mostly in the background. It's a, it's unlike the movies that I'm um, feet. Uh, uh, if you notice in the, um, in the book, though, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is the first movie in the book. It is also 
uh, discussed in much less detail than the other movies. And there's a reason for that, which is it really isn't about madness. And and the major characters do not have a madness that is easily characterized. Um, what's good about it is it paints a portrait of uh, mental hospitals at a certain time. Uh, and it also has in the background an array of people experiencing different, quite severe forms of madness that you can notice and and can help your observation skills because if I if I um, give you the assignment of as you're watching the film notice the people in the background notice their behavior and ask yourself what questions might you ask these people to help understand the fact that they're acting so strangely there's an old man who is kind of dancing by himself to a music only he can hear it looks like he's doing a waltz but um and but he's all by himself, and there's no music in the air. Um, there's another man who is splaying himself against uh, against a wall as though he's being crucified, um, and um, uh, he, but he, and he's maintaining that posture for an extended period of time. There's another person who's uh, muttering to himself, saying over and over again, "I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired." Um, to no one in particular. Uh, each one of these behaviors are behaviors that point to different aspects of fairly severe uh, mental illnesses. And um, and they would make sense that they would be uh, uh, behaviors that you might see in a, in a hospital that um, where back in the 1960s, which is when this film takes place, uh, 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 is it, a hospital where people went and stayed for a very long time because they had very severe and very intractable uh, diagnoses. But the film doesn't explore them very much, and it does not allow you inside the head of any of those characters to understand um, why they do what they do. In ma many ways, the one character we get to understand uh, in terms of how he sees the world and how he thinks is Chief Broom, who is the the majestic, enormous Indian, um, American, na Native American, um, who uh, for much of the film is totally silent. And and uh, in fact, somebody calls him a deaf and dumb Indian. Uh, and um, uh, we discover that he can talk and that he can hear and that he chose to be mute. And um, he says that he chose to be mute because he wanted to make himself as invisible as possible, um, having seen what um, uh, trying to engage the white man did to his father. It, 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 sent, it made his father become um, dependent on alcohol and the alcohol killed his father. And so he sees sees anything that that might uh, uh, make him appear like too much of a presence in the face of the of the boss. Um, would would possibly lead to his demise. Now, even as I'm describing this, this is a little bit delusional. And in fact, what's interesting is that the book uh, by Ken Kesey, um, which is told in the voice of Chief Broom, we discover he's got a very elaborate delusional system. He's absolutely convinced that he's in the hospital because there's a paranoid conspiracy against him by a group called the Collective um, that is putting him there because they see him as dangerous. Uh, when they made the movie, they left all of that out, right? and they actually changed his backstory to be uh, to be um, one that focuses on the experience of his father and not wanting to duplicate that experience. But that's the only 
glimmer we have into what's behind somebody's behavior. Uh, and of course, the film has this exhilarating um, uh, ending where uh, Chief Broom escapes the hospital. And there's a sense that McMurphy, who's the um, uh, playing, uh, who's the character played by Jack Nicholson. By the way, this is the role that made Jack Nicholson um, a superstar. And he's very, very good. In it. And he plays Randall McMurphy, who kind of tries to stir things up in the hospital. Um, and uh, uh, he, he likes to uh, kind of poke poke his finger in the belly of people in charge. Um, and But he doesn't realize that they have a power uh, that he didn't realize he gave to them when he allowed himself to be hospitalized. He thought he was in going into the hospital and was going to be kind of like going to a resort spa. Uh, little did he know that they could force him um, to uh, to have treatments that could be profoundly disabling. Um, and, and the treatment that, that ends the movie, he's had a lobotomy, which basically removes his personality. And, and, um, um, and so it, it ends sadly for him, but with an exhilarating sense of possibility for Chief Broom. Anyway, it's a very good movie. It's very entertaining. It's absorbing. It is actually not a great movie to study madness, but it's a movie everybody expects to see and it's worth talking about at the level that I'm talking about it. So that's why it's there. Yes, excellent. And um, you, as you have already mentioned, um, you really uh, discuss delusions and hallucinations in relation to schizophrenia. And uh, for our audience uh, who may not be very well aware of the symptoms of this uh, mental illness, could you pinpoint the, the hallmark symptoms of, of schizophrenia and um, are there different types of schizophrenia because you discuss um, it under uh, delusions and hallucinations in one chapter and then um, you discuss it again under acute psychosis phase let's call it in another chapter do these go together or um, are they different facets of schizophrenia there are different facets of schizophrenia. The acute uh, schizophrenia, this, uh, the acute psychosis that is in the chapter about repulsion is showing someone who at, at up until that point has not shown um, evidence of disease, evidence that she is ill. Um, she has a few eccentricities, but nothing that would draw attention or, or cause for worry. So what we're seeing is the, her first psychotic break, her first episode of losing touch with reality. Um, in the in the previous movie, um, Through a Glass Darkly by uh, Ingmar Bergman, it's a, which is a wonderful film in Swedish with subtitles, but um, but very much worth worth seeking out. Um, this is a woman who has had a psychotic break previous to the movie. She's been hospitalized. She's been treated, and she's better and she's sent home. And so we're seeing somebody who has had an illness that is now defined. It's understood to be chronic because schizophrenia is a lifelong illness. Um, but they're, the, treat, the hospital is hoping that she's well enough to be able to function outside the hospital. And we discover that, in fact, that's not the case. But what happens is her um, recurring, returning psychosis um, is nowhere near as intense or as violent, but is every bit as destabilizing because she is she becomes preoccupied with an imagined um, opportunity to commune with God uh, and to actually see God uh, uh, and have a conversation with God uh, and to and that this can all happen if she can figure out a way to get through the wallpaper of her attic room and into an imagined room on the other side. Um, 
And then she's terrified when she thinks she sees God, and it turns out that God looks like an enormous spider. Um, at which point she is terrified, and we see her terror um, as a behavior that is profound and upsetting to her, but also upsetting for us to watch. In Repulsion, we actually get inside the head of Carol, and we see her apartment um, distorting, and we see changes happening in her apartment um, that are what she is seeing. So we're actually able to experience the, the visual hallucinations and the auditory hallucinations, the sounds she hears that are not there. What makes for schizophrenia, and it is the most serious um, of the chronic uh, uh, madnesses, uh, chronic meaning that it lasts a long time. Once, once you have it, you have it. Um, uh, it can... It, Schizophrenia almost by definition does not wax and wane the way a bipolar illness does, which is where you can have an episode of uh, of mania or depression and then it gets better, but then uh, it, it may come back or it may come back in a different form. With schizophrenia, if you have it, the only way it can go away is if you are treated. Um, and, and the treatments we have can sit on the symptoms, but they don't um, they don't cure the illness. So what do you have? You have auditory hallucinations, which means that you're hearing things that other people cannot hear that are not there in the real world. You're hearing voices. Um, sometimes they're familiar voices. Sometimes they're the voice of the devil or an angel or of some stranger. Very often the voice is commenting on you. Maybe it's it's um, saying something bad about you, or it's uh, you could have something called a co command hallucination, which means the voice is telling you to do something that you may or may not want to do, um, but it's insistent. Uh, and sometimes the thing it's telling you to do is a bad thing, like hurt yourself, or say something that will be upsetting or painful to someone else. Um, so those are auditory hallucinations. The visual hallucinations is that you are seeing something that is not there. You are seeing um, uh, a creature that is not there. You're seeing a person that is not there. You're seeing, in the case of repulsion, uh, the apartment transform and and um, and uh, be destroyed as you're watching it. I had a patient um, uh, many many years ago. What she saw, which was terrifying to her, is that every time she looked at somebody, their faces would melt, um, like ice cream melting, um, and uh, right. and and it would scare her terribly. And you could imagine um, she would just hide from the world. Um, but if she didn't hide from the world, or if somebody walked in the room and their face started to melt, she would scream and run away and try to do anything to to not see that. Um, so these could be really terrifying. On the other hand, hallucinations can make you feel better sometimes because maybe what you see is an angel sitting up in the corner and the voice that the angel is saying is, it's okay, it's going to be all right. And that can make you feel good. And so one of the things that can happen with someone with um, a schizophrenic illness, it, uh, it depend, it's very important for you as the doctor to find out the specific nature of uh, the experience that they're having, because sometimes it's an experience they don't want to go to go away. It makes them feel safe or better. And the last thing they're going to do is take a medicine that you tell them will make them, quote, get better, but that will make those voices or that image um, leave them. Wow. Uh, the other, I didn't know that. That's, that oh, absolutely. sounds very interesting. Um, because very often it's, you know, that angel, it may be the only company that person has. 
the only person that they, the only imagined person, but to them it's real, um, who they think is a friend or is, is or 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 says something supportive. Um, so they don't want you to make it go away. So what you sometimes have to do is teach them to not to not talk to that angel when they're around other people, because if the angel is not telling them to do anything bad, and the medicine has side effects that they won't that, that make the medicine hard to take and besides they don't want the angel to go away um you may have to settle for the angel as long as the angel doesn't turn into a devil which can happen um the other aspect of schizophrenia that fits with all this is delusions and that and, and i was just describing a delusion when i said that the angel for instance might be um um uh telling you something about yourself that is or is not um, supportive and making you feel better. Uh, a delusion is a misunderstanding um, of the way you're thinking about what the reality is out there. The classic delusion is the paranoid delusion, and the and the classic paranoid delusion is feeling as though people are out to get you or to hurt you or um, are um, or saying bad things about you. Um, and uh, you walk into a room. And we may have all experienced this in a mild way, uh, because paranoia doesn't necessarily mean that you're having a major illness. Um, it's a word that can have extreme versions or can have mild versions. A mild version might be you walk in the room and people are chatting. And you and as soon as you walk in the room, you notice people glance at you and stop talking. And you might think to yourself, I wonder if they were talking about me or I wonder if they right. were saying something bad about me. That That's a paranoid thought. You have no no information that says they were talking about you. You just notice that they stopped talking when they when they looked at you, uh, and you certainly have no information that they were saying something bad. But if you leap to that assumption or that wondering, um, that's a paranoid thought. Now the smart thing to do is walk over there and chat with them a little bit and discover that they weren't talking about you. In which case the paranoia goes away. But someone who's got the paranoid delusion, it sticks. And there's a, it has its own inherent logic. You can't argue it away um, by 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 trying to persuade. Because what will often happen is if you have someone who has a strong degree of paranoia, and we talk about it, this in the book. It's one one of the chapters in Madness of the Movies is that about paranoia. Um, that if you as a therapist try to talk away the paranoia, try to prove that it's not the case, then then you may become part of that paranoid delusion. Ah, the doctor is also in on the plan to hurt me. Right. He's trying to he's trying to persuade me that it's not so. So you have to be very careful. What you have, the, the message you as a doctor ha is ha have to convey is I hear what you're telling me. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't think it's so. But tell me more. And um, and what's useful there, especially if someone is in the beginnings of a psychotic process, is there's often a part of them that is saying, I wonder if it's true this thing that I'm thinking. And if you can support that, it will may help them not get into a worse understanding of the delusion where basically nothing you say will make a difference. Um, so, um, so to catch it early and to make it clear that you're not going to confront it, but you're going to express your doubts about it, that, that's a good way of helping the person maybe understand that doubting about it is not a bad idea. And then maybe we can even figure out a way not to believe this scary thing. Um, uh, an extreme version of paranoid thinking is the classic, uh, uh, I'm in the basement now, I've invented an anti-gravity machine, the FBI is following me because they want to take my invention away, and when I go up 
up outside. There are invisible he helicopters that only I can see that are that are hovering around and they're following me because I'm so important. All that's paranoid. Now, what's interesting about that is that's paranoid that suggests that you're special. It's and it might even be saying the paranoia might actually be saying that the helicopters, the invisible helicopters that nobody else can see, that those helicopters are there to protect you. That's also paranoid. By definition, paranoia is imagining um, that things are about you that aren't about you, whether they're bad or good. Usually they're bad, but they that can also be good. Me, sorry, that reminds yes. me of, of um, the beautiful mind. There was... Uh, yes, there with, was Rus a... with Russell Crowe. Yes, yes, that's true. Um, how, how does that remind you of it? What, what's the part of it that, that connects? Um, it it was a while ago that I watched a movie, but I remember a case where uh, he, he believes that he's working for the for this secret agency, and then he's paranoid of all the people around him. Um, uh, yes, that's that, that, that's right. Um, now this is based on a true story. This uh, Professor Nash, who was a genius, a mathematician. Um, and it turned out it was also schizophrenic. And um, schizophrenia does not affect your intelligence, um, but it can affect how you use that intelligence because you want, may wind up using that intelligence to, to do things that are delusional. Um, and this is a very good example of it. Um, I actually uh, include that movie in the, in the chapter about paranoia and about psychosis. The problem with Beautiful Mind is um, it does a wonderful job of getting it, us into the mind of, of the lead character so that we see the world the way he sees it. And um, when he suddenly has an awareness of the fact that maybe what he's thinking is delusional, he does it because he's he's smart and he thinks about it, and it doesn't work that way. Um, it, uh, he also does it because he's got a devoted and loving wife, in the, according to the movie. Uh, unfortunately, a loving uh, relative is not a, always a cure. It can be absolutely powerfully important to help somebody get the support they need. It matters to have somebody who cares about you and cares for you. Um, but having somebody be devoted to you isn't going to make this illness go away. Uh, and having um, being so smart isn't necessarily going to make the illness go away. The movie is is is, is very um, uh, confused about that. He suddenly has an aha moment that this little girl that he's been imagining over the years never grew up. Therefore, he suddenly realizes that this is a, has been a crazy idea because, of course, she would have had to have grown up over the years. Um, that kind of uh, moment of, of 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 revelation just doesn't happen. Uh, uh, we, we I wish it, it did, but it doesn't. So the so the film is wonderful at getting us into the head of this person who uh, thinks that he's that that his brilliance is um, is making him so special that the FBI and CIA are asking him to do all kinds of things, uh, and he winds up doing very bizarre behaviors like prowling through the newspaper and looking for codes that are in, 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 news, in news articles and the codes speak to him and tell him something about the spying that he's supposedly doing for the government. And it's all made up. There is no government person. There is no agency. Nobody's ever hired him. Nobody's, he, uh, nobody's asking him to do these tasks. Um, and one of the things the, the, the film does show is that there's a moment where um, the delusion uh, is so intense that he accidentally uh, hits his wife um, uh, trying to struggle with her to get her to understand what's happening. And, uh, and at the urging of a hallucinated um, 
uh, person who is part of his delusional system and this hallucination that he's seeing somebody who's supposedly his controller in the CIA and the and the controller is telling him we have to get rid of your wife because she's getting in the, in the way and um and so he he behaves in a way that is dangerous that scares the hell out of her and she tries to run away um and take their baby with them that's the uh, there's another moment in the film where he thinks that somebody is watching the baby in the bath um so he wanders off into the kitchen leaving the baby in the bath as the water gets higher and higher. And fortunately, his wife comes home soon enough to rescue the baby. And he's absolutely in, convinced that somebody is watching the baby. Well, he was hallucinating that person. This is a, a person who was never there. In fact, it's a person who doesn't exist. So this is this is the kind of dangerous thing that can happen with these kinds of illnesses. The movie points to it, but then kind of goes off the rails just often enough for it not to be an ideal portrait of, of madness. Right. So this was another example of where um, the movies might not be so accurate to describe uh, 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 madness, basically. Absolutely. Right. Some movies are, are kind of right on. And most of the movies that I show um, have very few mistakes and the mistakes are relatively minor. Uh, and there's there's films that, you know, just are outright wrong. Uh, um, uh, the Joker is a film that uh, several people asked me to write about. And I did, but I was reluctant to because the Joker is a mishmash of about three or four uh, madnesses, none of which can happen at the same time. Um, and um, do you and after, cover Joker under psychopathy section? Uh, no, uh, I I cover him under. I, where do I put the Joker? I think I put him under the psychopathy thing, section. But um, but he's um. Uh, in the middle of that, he's shown to be psychotic. It's shown that he has hallucinations, which would make him not a psychopath. Um, psychopaths are not psychotic. They don't have hallucinations. Uh, they don't even have delusions, except they have a delusion that they're, that they're so special that the world should bend to their will. Um, they're incredibly narcissistic. Uh, they're very t entitled, but they're not psychotic in that they're not seeing and hearing things that are not there. Um, right. the, the Joker is suddenly seeing somebody who's not there, which is the, the person he thinks is his girlfriend. Uh, and um, and that just doesn't fit. And it doesn't fit with his other behaviors. So, um, so you know, make up your mind, folks. <laughs> Don't forget, <laughs> this is a cartoon character we're dealing with, and it is a very powerfully effective movie in many ways. Yes. <laughs> and um and uh, and uh, Joaquin Phoenix does a beautiful job. Um, uh, and this is one of those those roles that every actor wants to play. Jack Nicholson played the Joker in another version of the Batman series. Um, and Heath Ledger, who who uh, died unfortunately of an overdose, um, played the Joker in yet another one. And each one of them really kind of. Uh, uh, stole the scenery um, in um, in in their in their portrayal, made the Joker an absolutely fascinating person. Frankly, a heck of a lot more fascinating than the Batman. Um, and um, so they're fun to play, but especially in the Joker, uh, it, it's just a bit of a mess. So yes, right. I talk about it, but I talk about it as as what not to do. Right, but apart from Joker, you actually cover quite a wide range of movies that display um, psychopathic characters. So mm -hmm. uh, I was wondering, have you ever had a case of uh, psychopathy in your clinic? Or um, 
the movies that you cover in the book, do they display different types of psychopaths? Uh, because typically when psycho psychopathy is displayed in, in fiction, there are they are usually serial killers. But in That's reality, true. that might not necessarily be the case, or maybe it is. Um, what's your opinion on this? It is true. Um, it is it is true that not every psychopath is a serial killer. It is also true that if you look at the people who are serial killers, a large percent of them are psychopaths and the rest are psychotic. Um, right. Uh, okay. So, um, so psychopaths can be serial killers, but they usually are not. Um, uh, but they behave badly to other people in ways that aren't necessarily murderous. Um, and uh, usually... They get into trouble with the law because because invariably a psychopath is someone who will never think that he needs a therapy. A psychopath will think that everybody else needs therapy. They're okay, <laughs> but um, the rest of the world is not okay because they're giving them a hard time. Uh, uh, and um, the psychopath is is very comfortable in his own skin in a way that most uh, people who have some kind of madness are not. Uh, uh, and so how will they get into therapy? They'll get into therapy because they're in jail and they, or they get into therapy because a judge orders that they have to be in therapy. Otherwise, they'll be in jail. Um, so most uh, psychopaths are terrible patients. They're also very good liars. So you have to be very careful about what they say, because uh, half of what they say that may not be true. Uh, and you you as a, a therapist have to be more of an investigator uh, talking to people in the life of the psychopath if you um, have, have the unenviable job of, of trying to uh, treat them. Uh, so I, I have had very few people that I have identified as psychopaths in my practice. Hallelujah. <laughs> Um, so this psycho by Alfred Hitchcock, the, the the name of this movie is quite misleading, isn't it? Because actually, it, it, the the character has nothing to do with psychopathy. Um, yes, it, it is misleading. Um, so the word psycho, I mean, I would never use, I would never make a, a book called Psycho in, in the title because psycho is both a pejorative. It's 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 an insult to call somebody psycho is like calling them crazy. That's also an insult, um, but. Um, it also implies it. It may imply nothing more than somebody's got a violent te temper. You know, somebody's somebody's having a major temper outburst, and you say, "Oh, he's psycho," um, and and that's not a diagnostic term. There is no diagnostic term called psycho. Psycho simply means it has something to do with the mind, and that that's why there are um, things like psychopath, which means somebody has something in, in his mind that is a problem. The path suggests that there's a disorder there. And by the way, a psychopath is a personality disorder, which is different from uh, uh, an, uh, the kind of madness that is an illness that that where you can point and say this illness started at this time. Uh, even someone with schizophrenia, where schizophrenia very often happens, um, shows itself first in adolescence or in or the early 20s. And sometimes you can look back and say, well, there was a, something a little strange about this person, even as young as age 10 or 12. But the diagnosis itself usually has a starting point. And you can say before that, they were basically okay. And then after that, the madness took over. Um, the psychopath is basically... That's who they are. That's their personality. That's one of the reasons that they're so hard to treat. Um, it's not, there is no point that you could say this began as an illness. It's just, it, it, it's, I, I, I say it's hardwired and that 
doesn't mean um, anything in terms of physiology. I'm just saying that it's hardwired in the sense that it's the essence of who they are. It's not that a, a person with an illness, which is a legitimate way of talking about someone with, say, depression. Most people with depression, if, especially if they're not bipolar, um, will maybe have an extended period of time where they were not depressed. Um, maybe they had the ordinary ups, ups and downs in life, but depression as as a psychiatric illness, which um, has a very specific things connected with it, uh, not just being sad, not just being tearful, but feeling hopeless and not eating and not grooming yourself and not take care of yourself, taking care of yourself, um, having no energy, having lost any any uh, pleasure in the things that normally uh, you would enjoy. All of that can add up to the diagnosis of depression. Uh, but but with depression, somebody has a time before depression and the time when the depression starts. And if they're, and typically every depression gets better, maybe not all better, but significantly better. So if you hang in there long enough, if you stay alive long enough, because one of the, the worries about depression is that someone might get suicidal uh, because their hopelessness becomes so overwhelming and the world seems so dark um, that um, if they stay alive, they'll feel better. So it's an episodic thing, and many illnesses are episodic, but um, a personality disorder is not. And psycho psychopathy, the psychopath, is not um, uh, an episodic illness. It is an illness that is lifelong and is basically inherent in the personality of the person who, who behaves that way. So right. that's the difference. And, and, and there's nobody in the movie Psycho who fits that definition. Uh, uh, people have raised the possibility that we were dealing with some version of multiple personality disorder with psycho or or um, dissociative identity disorder, which is the new name for that. Um, but even that, I think, is a hard fit. Um, uh, clearly, this is a seriously disturbed person. And I would say that he's in the psychotic realm. Uh, uh, the, he's, he has a delusion about his experience with his dead mother, and, and he feeds that delusion by dressing up as her. I'm afraid. I'm sorry if I just gave you a spoiler, but <laughs> um, uh, I feel bad about that. Actually, having said that, um, but you you can leave it in the podcast. But but um, the truth <laughs> is, I, I I even though I tell I, I do walkthroughs of all the movies and I give a lot of detail about the only movie where I think uh, there are very few movies I think that uh, where revealing the outcome and revealing what is what really happens uh, can take away from your first experience of it. But I, it's hard to imagine anybody who hasn't seen Psycho. And if you haven't seen Psycho, or if you, you think you saw it because you saw an excerpt, maybe the shower scene from Psycho on YouTube, you haven't seen the movie because there's so much else there besides just that one moment, um, however powerful that moment is, and it really is. Um, but if, uh, if you haven't seen Psycho, see it and, 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 Pretend you didn't hear what I just said. <laughs> About that. So um, how did the uh, movie Psycho change uh, movie watching experience? You also discuss about this uh, in, in the book. Yes. Can you tell uh, us I, a little bit about it? I found that fascinating when I heard about it. Um, I, I remember seeing Psycho, uh, but I don't, I think I saw it when it first came out. Um, I would have been fairly young. I would have been uh, in high school or college, early college. Uh Back then, if you went to the movies, you would go to a theater and the theater would usually have a double feature, would have two films. It would have an A film, which usually had a major star and a B film, which would have a lesser star, but 
over time, very often the B films have held uh, held up better than the A films, um, and the B film could be one of good quality. But anyway, you would wind up having the opportunity to see two films back to back with shorts in between them. So the shorts would be a, a newsreel or a cartoon or a nature documentary or coming attractions, and then you'd have the second movie. Back in the day, people didn't pay a lot of attention to a starting time for the movie. You just go to the theater uh, with your with your friend or with your family, and you'd go in there and you'd come in and you'd maybe come in 20 minutes into the movie and you'd find a seat and you'd sit down and you'd watch and you'd watch to the end of the movie and then you'd watch the shorts, then you'd watch the second movie then you'd watch more shorts that would be different, short films. And then you'd watch the beginning of the first movie. And about the time that you got to the spot where you said, oh, this looks familiar, you'd say, this is where we came in, and you'd leave. <laughs> um, and leave usually stumbling over the knees of the other people in your in your row and, and, and uh, annoying them. But that was normal. It was normal to come into a movie and not worry about whether you saw it from the beginning. Uh, now, this was a serious problem for Alfred Hitchcock with Psycho because he had, he did something in Psycho that had never been done before. Actually, that's not true. It was done before less than a year earlier in the film Peeping Tom in England, but um, that film had such a little impact um, for, and it's, it has its own story about why that had such little impact that basically the, Hitchcock was the first person to do this. He killed off a major star in the movie and he killed her off halfway through. Um, and so if somebody showed up after that happened, they would spend the rest of the movie saying, where is Janet Leigh? Um, uh, I came here to see this movie with, you know, with Anthony Perkins and Janet Leigh and where's Janet Leigh? Uh, he was very concerned about that. He'd, he'd be afraid that this would pull people out of the movie. They wouldn't be able to enjoy it because they'd worry about what was happening that they had missed because they didn't come in at the beginning. So he came up with an idea. There was a tradition of road movies, these uh, movies that were special events like The Ten Commandments or Around the World in 80 Days. These were usually very long movies. They'd be three hours long. They might even have an intermission. Um, and for those movies, you would buy a ticket and you would come at a start time. So there was a tradition of that. But those movies were usually more expensive. They were special events. They didn't happen in local theaters. You might have to go into the center of the city to see them. And in local theaters, it wasn't done. The movies would play continuously. So he came up with an idea, which was that he was he had enough clout to say that no theater could show this film unless they um, kept everybody out of the theater and, and only let them in at the beginning of the movie. Uh, they would not. No one would be allowed to go into the theater in in the middle of Psycho. Uh, he even put a poster of himself with his finger to his lips. Um, and the poster said, please, uh, please, do, his poster said, please don't tell our ending. It's the only one we've got. So he it was asking people to keep a secret about what happens in the movie. But he also um, indicated that you're not allowed to enter unless uh, you unless you're coming in at the beginning, or you could come in during the, the shorts that happened before the beginning, but you had to be sitting down in your seat when the movie started. So what did that mean? It meant people started standing in line. They had to wait 
in line in the foyer of the movie theater and maybe down the street because the movie became popular uh, in part because he was very good at marketing and he he came up with a trailer for the movie that he filmed and he is in and that was also unusual um uh, introducing the film and making people want to see it they would see it as as a coming attraction as the a movie they watched two or three weeks before so uh, people were standing in line. And because people were standing in line, other people would look and say, hey, they're standing in line. This must be special. As a result, <laughs> that, in, that generated interest. Um, it also allowed theater owners to realize um, that they could show a movie and still set a rule like that if the movie was popular enough and, and, and the people were eager enough to see it. And it made all the difference. The movie was an incredibly big hit. Um, even though several of the original reviews said that they they thought it was over the top and too violent, um, people read that and said, well, that sounds good. I want to see too violent. And so so they went to see Psycho. So it changed the way movies were made, because pretty much from then on, you did not go into the movies and and come in at the middle. You waited until. Um, the beginning of the next film, you might wait until the beginning of the B movie and not necessarily the A movie, but you were sitting down watching the movie, paying attention to it, enjoying it and fully, uh, fully in engaging with the movie um, and not allowing yourself to be distracted by the fact that you didn't know who, what had happened in the first 10 minutes. Uh, so he changed the way movie going has been, and it's in, and that's pretty much the way it is now. Nowadays, we go to the movie at the beginning if we can manage it. It was very smart of Alfred Hitchcock, I have to say. Yeah, he was. <laughs> he was. He was. At, he was as good at marketing his films as he was at directing them. <laughs> right. Um, I want to move on to another topic. So, yes. um, the different movies such as Through a Glass Darkly, um, mm -hmm. Woman Under the Influ Influence, and Ordinary People, they all. Um, depict different illnesses but they they sort of uh, unify under the theme of displaying multiple madnesses in one family how does that speak to you as a as a clinician it it speaks to me very powerfully because my when you're in training for psychiatry um at some point you you have to make some decisions about what kind of psychiatry you want to do. And um, and when I was in training, the the major psychiatric mode was still either psychoanalytic or um, or a, a therapy that was was informed by psychoanalysis, um, uh, not necessarily having somebody lie on the couch, which is classic psychoanalysis, but possibly having somebody in, sitting in front of you and, and having a more active engagement on the part of the therapist. But the therapist is still thinking using the analytic model. I found myself uh, resisting that approach, and and would be a whole long conversation to to say why. But but I was I was encouraged in that in that uh, I had some mentors in my training, and several of them were people who had been trained and had active practices in psychoanalysis who found it frustrating because they found it very ineffective dealing with certain kinds of of, of madness. Um, it's it's Freud Freud himself was smart enough to say. You should never do psychoanalysis with someone who's psychotic because um, by not making eye contact, by giving them the instruction to um, to free associate, to say whatever comes to your mind, um, that it that makes it way too easy for the psychotic person to kind of go off off the edge um, because you're giving them no feedback about reality. You're asking them to tell you. 
uh, uncensored their reality, and and um, and that's that's not a good thing. So he knew that was not good, but it turns out it's relatively ineffective with other ther- uh, other diagnoses as well. And even when it works, it, it's an enormous commitment of time and money. Um, usually, in classic psychoanalysis, people would have to come three or four times a week um, and not make any decisions unless the analyst agreed to them. Um, so you kind of put yourself um, uh, under the uh, uh, under the influence. Speaking of a woman under the influence, you put yourself under the influence of your therapist in a way that that is a, a, a little making you a little bit childlike, a little bit overly dependent. Anyway, these a- analysts got frustrated with psychoanalysis and looked in search of a different modality. And at the time, family therapy was uh, beginning to be. Uh, uh, be developed and and promoted and becoming extremely exciting about there were a handful of family therapists um who were who were um uh very passionate and very good at seeing entire families together in a room all at the same time with the understanding that whoever is the identified patient whoever's the one that that they're they're coming whoever's the one whose behavior have caused the most concern may not be the person who's hurting the most or may not even be the person who is most ill um but even if that's the it is true that this person is the one that has the most profound madness the family can either make it worse or they can make it better and you as a therapist can help them make it better meanwhile you can also see how the family operates and see if you can understand how they may be making it worse or or how they can be maybe encouraging things to stay stuck because maybe there's something about the person's having the madness in the family that is um that is equalizing, that is stabilizing for the family, having a patient, having someone who who needs a special care to take care of. So the family therapy was a mode that I found um, I was very sympathetic to. And I had as these these two mentors, um, Carl Fellner and Carl Whitaker, I, I called them two Carls. They came from very different backgrounds, but both were psychoanalysts who were teaching family therapy at the University of Washington. And that's what I learned how to do. And when I came to Yale, um, almost nobody was doing family therapy. The East Coast was very much um, uh, uh, enamored still of psychoanalysis. And um, I was working with children primarily, and I felt it was uh, uh, foolish for the child to have a therapist and the parents to have a different therapist, and then two therapists never talked to each other, which was pretty typical back then. Um, so I started seeing families when I would see a child, I would insist on seeing the family. Also, I would sometimes very often see the child by him or herself, but I would also see the child with the entire family and the entire family would sometimes include grandma and grandpa and, and aunt Sally who lived down the street, whoever had daily ongoing, um, contact with, uh, with the, with the person who was identified as my patient. Um, so I am very sympathetic to any movie that understands that just looking at one person with a madness is not sufficient to understand all of the dimensions of that madness. And the films that you mentioned, um, Farad, are films that do show how the madness affects the family and how the family affects the person who is suffering from that madness. Um, in Through a Glass Darkly, we discover that the, that the father um, has, has problems with depression um, and he's actually studying his daughter and watching her psychosis to help the new book that he wants to write. So he's behaving in a way that is, is, is oddly callous 
Um, but it protects him from really allowing himself to feel how upset he is about what's happening to his daughter, uh, to his adult daughter. Um, so to see the family together, to see how the father is encouraging her worst behaviors at the same time is in great pain himself, that's important to know. And, this, and Through a Glass Darkly shows that um, very powerfully. Um, Ordinary People also does a beautiful job of that. It does not show... Um, um, what I wish I could, uh, uh, in several of these films, uh, I would love to have been the therapist in this uh, situation, if you could imagine um, this fictional situation becoming real life, and that I could have sat down with them as a family. Uh, in Ordinary People, the young man, Conrad, who's who's having the hardest time with depression and grief at the loss of his brother, and particularly is is upset with with his his mother treating him as though he has to just snap out of it and act normal because it's important to her, for her, for um, for there be, to be a level of normality in the family, pretending as though nothing has ever happened. At the same time, she is really hurting, but she won't admit to it. She won't acknowledge it, but we see it in private moments. Um, but she can't allow anybody to talk to her about it or to touch it. Um, it's too tender. And and for her son, he has his own problems with that. But the difference is they get him to see a psychiatrist. And one of the things that made ordinary people inspire me to teach the course and also inspired me to write the book is it has one of the best portraits of psychotherapy that isn't uh, that isn't buried in the analytic passivity, but is in fact engaging in an active way with the patient and is very supportive, but at the same time, very clear about what the rules are that will most likely make the therapy work. Um, it's a really good portrait of it. Um, Judd Hirsch plays the, the psychiatrist. Um, and um, I have often said, if I was going to see a movie psychiatrist for myself, he's the one I'd want to see. Um, and in fact, in the book, I have an entire chapter on how therapy is portrayed in various movies. And, and hands down, his is the best version that I could find. I show a few other good versions and a few really terrible ones too. Um, because as I said, uh, showing the mistakes and showing the bad news can be in many ways as educational as showing how it's done right. So actually, which movie would be your favorite and least favorite to, to depict uh, therapy sessions? Ah, um, the least favorite would be uh, I never promised you a rose garden. The, one of the therapists who is a substitute, it's a portrait of a, a woman who um, is schizophrenic and, um, and is hospitalized uh, 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 and institutionalized uh, for that. Um, th this is not a great movie, but it is a really bad therapist. <laughs> um, uh, and, and basically, um, he becomes so interested in her psychotic she has an elaborate delusional system. She's imagining that she um, is controlled by um, th these creatures from another world who kind of look like uh, a, ca a caricature of Neanderthal cavemen. Um, and um, uh, but she uh, feels as though there's some something caretaking in their rigidity, and they can often be incredibly damning and say things to her that make her want to hurt herself. But at the same time, she somehow feels devoted to this world. Um, and it has its own language. And when she starts using the word, the words from this language, um, he pulls out all these dictionaries and he's trying to find out what what language they might really be from. Uh, and he's treating her as though she's um, as, as though she's a specimen on a on a on a, on a microscopic 
uh, plate that has to be poked. Um, there's no sense of him understanding her humanity. Um, and what's good about the film is that she has a much better, better therapist who's her regular therapist. And when she uses this strange language, what the therapist does, which is the right thing, is to ask what the language means, ask how she feels about the language, ask how it's used, um, to basically say, you can talk about your world. I want to understand your world. I want to help you leave it, but I want to understand it first. Um, and this other guy is not doing that. Another really bad therapist is the therapist in the movie Harold and Maud, um, who uh, basically talks at the patient the whole time. Right. Um, I, I I could give you, a, and probably the single worst therapist uh, of all, but it's meant totally to be comic, is Peter Sellers in What's New Pussycat. Um, and, <laughs> of course, um, yes. And just, and just before he sees his patient, um, Peter O'Toole, um, he has a major temper tantrum, like a child uh, pounding on the floor. Uh, then he gets up and 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 um, and uh, and immediately asks about the sex life of his patient. And be, and halfway through the session, they switch positions, and now he's on the couch, and Peter O'Toole is sitting in the chair. So, but that's totally that's a farce. And uh, but the problem is some. Of these other films, like I, I can never promise you a Rose Garden, is portraying something that unfortunately may be a little bit too close to what some people really experience. Uh, a therapist who's more intellectually interested in the illness than actually trying to help. Right. Well, this has been really fascinating. Um, could you maybe tell us about what you're currently working on? Do you have a, a new book coming up that you're working on? Well, I do have a new book. What, what's been fun for me is that coming out of the fact of this book, um, I've been able to teach um, a mini course again um, based on the book. Um, it turns out the Yale alumni has something called the Yale Alumni College, which is kind of adult education for people who graduated from Yale years ago. And uh, and they, they offer a handful of courses every year specifically to Yale alumni. So um, I presented uh, the fact of my book and that I would like to teach a course. So I'm teaching an abbreviated course. It's six weeks instead of the normal 12 to 13 weeks of, of, um, of a school semester. But I'm teaching a course based on the book. And it's been fascinating because I'm dealing with folks who are about my age, many of them retired, um, very different backgrounds, lawyers, professors, um, people in business, um, uh, and a few younger folks who are, who are just, just a few years out of graduate school. Yeah, I have I have 18 students, and it's just been an enormous amount of fun. I have two more classes, and then it's going to be over. Um, uh, what I am working on is, is, is uh, almost finished with a book that I'm writing with my son. Um, I, I think I mentioned earlier that my son is an art historian who's written close to 20 books. Um, and his subject has nothing to do with psychology. But one of the books that he just published this past fall is called The 12-Hour Art Expert. And um, it's it's a book uh, that is for, it's a little bit like the dummy book series. It's, it's a book that um, explains in very basic terms, but very correctly and with a lot of useful information uh, about a, a, a subject that maybe you have no experience in. So his, his assumption is that there's a world of people who might be interested in art, um, would like to know a little bit more when they go to a museum, would like to know a little bit more about what happens when they read about a, a, a painting that's been stolen, for instance, what's so special about that painting. So, But they don't know much about it. They never had a chance to take a class or they never had, had experience when they were younger um, going to museums. And so he wrote a book that is a is a primer uh, about art history, and it walks you through um, uh, all of the ma some major works of art um, from 
ancient times all the way to modern art. Um, it helps you understand what's behind them, how to see them, how to think about them and tell stories about them. Anyway, this book has been done very, very well, um, got very good reviews. And his publisher liked the idea of maybe turning it into the beginning of a series like the Dummy series, which is the dummy book of fill in the blank. Um, uh, and, and there's probably a 30 or 40 titles now. So um, so my son and I, uh, I, I told Noah that I was feeling a little down in the dumps. I wasn't depressed, but I was feeling a little empty when I finished all the writing of the book and the copy editing and finished vetting the index. And all of a sudden there was nothing to do except wait for it to come out six months later. And I was feeling a little bit at sea. And he said, why don't we write a book together? And he said, when I finish a book, this is how he, he winds up writing 20 of them. Uh, when I finish a book, I've already started the next one. So I don't allow myself to feel at sea because I always have one foot in the next project. So I said, well, I don't have that, but let's do something together. So between the two of us, we came up with the 12 hour film expert. And so we have been writing together um, a book that is say, like his art expert uh, book, but will be an introduction to people who don't much about don't know much about film history um, or about particular types of film, like film noir, or about classic Hollywood films, or about musicals, or about the heist film. Uh, what are the typical things that make that film? fit a particular genre? What are the things to look for so you'll know this is a good film or it's not so good? Um, uh, and what are some films that you really should see if you're interested in that kind of film? So uh, we are we finished 10 chapters and we have two more to go and it's going to we'll have our 12 chapters. So that's my project. I've been working on that since I finished this book. Wow, that sounds amazing. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, um, I, yes, it is amazing. And I have to say, I've got a very nice son who kind of takes care of his pop. <laughs> and could you tell uh, tell our listeners how, uh, listeners how they can find more information about um, um, this book and the uh, upcoming books? I am not widely in social media, but the book Madness at the Movies is currently available in any independent bookshop. You might have to ask them to order it, but they can order it and have it for you in a day or two. Uh, it is available at all the online sources like Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It is available as a printed book. It is available as a Kindle ebook. And as of next month, no, as of the or beginning of June, it will be available as an audio book with somebody reading it. Um, uh, so it'll be available in several formats. And um, I would love if you bought a copy and enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed writing it. I definitely enjoyed reading it. And uh, it was really an amazing discussion today. And thanks for joining me for this podcast. Thank you so much, Farad. I really enjoyed talking with you as well, and um, I, I wish you well. Thank you again.